0: Well, hello church. So glad that you could be with us on what is known in the church calendar as Palm Sunday. And so to align ourselves with that event, we're gonna jump ahead a little bit in our week-by-week study of the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew 21. And so if you have your Bibles, will not you please turn there with us. I think we will see that God in His providential kindness once again will give us a word for the moment exactly as we need it. Fleming Rutledge had a beautiful description of Palm Sunday, she said, that it is the Trojan horse of the church calendar. What she meant by that, it's so profound, is that it kind of sneaks in, appearing like something else. It is a remembrance of a story that looks like pure praise from beginning to end, but it's one that actually sets the scene for God participating with the world in immense suffering. It looks like a praise party second to none for the arrival of a new king, and it is actually the entrance into Holy Week, and the reflection that we must make on the costly and sacrificial love of that king, who didn't just hear Hosanna in the streets of Jerusalem, but would go on to hear crucify him in some of those same streets. It is a reminder, friends, in a week like this one, that we believe in a kingdom that is both now, it's at hand, but it's also clearly not fully yet, which ought to be obvious to us as we look at the world. This helps us as Christians to have a posture of hopeful realism. That's the posture we should adopt as we sojourn through this life. We are the most hopeful of all people because the kingdom of God is at hand and we know the goodness of that king and the power indeed of that king. And we are of all people the most realistic about the world's brokenness and fallenness and its subjection to sin and its curse because we know that the world executed that king and rejected his kingdom. And that is a result, it won't see its full manifestation until he returns. And so, friends, it's in that posture of now and not yet, of hopeful and realistic. It's that posture that helps us to interpret another week of violence in this beautiful land. More lives lost in that senseless, cruel, and evil shooting in Colorado more hatred acted out, more violence, more murder. We don't try to gloss over that. We don't try to pretty that up in any way. We don't sweep it under the rug. It is horrific when we think of those people who were killed in a grocery store while going about their business. But we fight even in the midst of that brokenness and that sin and that terror to be a people of hope and we ask the God of heaven to bring something out of this tragedy and out of this grievous sin that we've seen played out in front of us this week. And so in that posture, why not you pray with me just before we get going today, just before we see what the word has for us in a moment like this. will not you just pause with me in prayer as we reflect upon um, uh, the, the events of this last week. Oh God the God of all comfort, who comforts those who are afflicted so they in turn can turn and comfort others. Oh, won't you be near to the grieving? Won't you comfort the families of those lost in this heinous act of violence? Won't you be close to them in a way they never imagined? Won't you be a God who is present in their suffering? Won't you show them the mercies of your grace and the power of your resurrection? Hope, please God, be real and be near, comfort them. Lord, won't you convict that young murderous man in his heart? I pray that he would accept and be subjected to the justice of this world but I pray that he would also come to know and receive the grace and the mercy of your kingdom. Meet him where he's at, Lord, please change him. Convict him of his deep sin. And for us, Lord, won't you make us a people of hope, a people who are willing to press into the dark and difficult spaces of our world with the message of a sure and certain king who's coming again, make us those sorts of hopeful realists in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Why not you turn with me to Matthew 21. We're gonna go from verse one of this very familiar text. It says, when they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. I do wanna try this out at some point in my life, just acquiring someone else's stuff and saying, the Lord has need of them and just seeing what response happens. But this is so beautifully orchestrated providentially by God uh, that there is no response. This took place so that was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you gentle, and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey, verse six. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. The them is the clothes, not on the colt and the donkey. It'd be weird if he rode in on both of them at the same time. And so that's a bit of a a funky piece of Matthew's grammar that has been um, confusing scholars (laughs) for a generation. He sat on them, the cloaks that they had laid on the colt, which was walking beside the donkey. Hope you got all of that. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this? Oh, friends, there's so much going on here in this beautiful text that we can't quite picture from our own culture and context and, 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 and moment in time. But Jesus and his disciples were arriving in Jerusalem for a very important feast. They were arriving there for Passover, which this year actually started uh, yesterday. Uh, I was out walking in our neighborhood last night and walked past the homes of two of our Jewish friends who were enjoying a celebratory meal to start the great remembrance of God's deliverance. And it was just so cool to be able to stop and wish them well and to wish them a blessed Passover and to share just briefly that I also believe in the God of the Exodus who who redeems and, and rescues his people from their bondage. You see, Passover was one of the great festivals in the city of Jerusalem. And people would travel from all over the region and as they did it had kind of like a party atmosphere it had a bit of a carnival atmosphere as people got reunited with with friends and and family members and it was before social media so they didn't know how insane their friends and family members had become politically and so they still liked them and so when they saw them they were excited to see them and then they would join together and they would all make the ascent right the 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 march up to Jerusalem which sat on the hill they would sing the psalms of ascent as they went. They would read the story of the Exodus to each other and they would eat and they would celebrate and they would consider their devotion to their Lord as they made their way. It was part of their annual spiritual formation strategy. It was a beautiful thing to behold. I had something of a similar experience just a couple of weeks ago, driving to Florida for the annual festival known in America as Spring Break. And, and as I sat stationary in my car for two hours, somewhere in Louisiana, there was um, a sense of, uh, uh, of dread and, and bemoaning my lot. There was less celebrating and there was more questioning of my life choices. And as I looked into the life, eyes of all of my fellow sojourners, and we would nod slowly at each other, we too started to think of some psalms, right? But they were all of the imprecatory psalms where we're heaping vengeance upon all of our enemies who were blocking our way. As we pulled off the road so tired, me and my kids, we we decided to start the celebratory week with with a ritual meal, and so we had some very leavened bread at Waffle House, which we had never been to before, and which we will never ever, ever go to again. I cannot say that clearly enough. It is part of the the kind of uh, mandatory experience for those who are becoming American citizens. You have to, you just have to. So we went once, we won't go again. But I sat there very sad and deeply repented, singing the Psalms to myself, and instead of playing worship music, I was tapping along to Rage Against the Machine tunes in my car. It was different, but it was also a spiritual formation experience of sorts, and so I get it. But what was happening here in Matthew 21 was way different, it was way better than that. If you can picture the scene, Jesus was making the steep ascent we're told to the east of Jerusalem where he would have come out onto a hill where he could see the whole city out in front of him and a bit of a rowdy crowd from Galilee had joined with him. They knew him, they knew his reputation. John tells us that this is the region where he had raised Lazarus from the dead and so there was a real sense of anticipation amongst this group that he might be the Messiah. He might be the king that they had been waiting for. He might be the answer to all of their problems and strife that they were being subjected to under Rome. And they had lots of it. They're an occupied and oppressed people and rumors start to bust out that this humble Galilean peasant might be the one who's gonna liberate them at last. Scholar Adeyemo comments in this way. He says, nationalistic hopes for freedom or redemption from occupation ran high at the major festivals in Jerusalem the arrival of a prophet from Galilee already linked to messianic claims and deeds like the feeding of the 5,000 would naturally fuel expectations that independence was near. And so this isn't just religious hope, this is political hope. This is hope for a better future for the nation of Israel and it starts to bustle out and, and, and spread in the crowd. Jesus might be the one and it causes what Matthew calls an uproar. Now, now that word in the original language is. Strong. It literally means that people were disturbed and visibly anxious. So not everyone agreed that this Jesus might be the hope that they were looking for. And so this might help us to understand the question and the answer, but the question that shapes this text, which is, who is this? They were confounded by this man. They'd heard great things, they'd seen great things, but when he comes into view, they go like, this is not what we expected. This is not what we expected a great leader to look like, they were asking because there was this great disturbance to their relative peace. Because everywhere Jesus goes, He disturbs the peace in the most peaceful of ways. He still does this. And so friends, we too, like the original viewers of this moment should ask at this juncture, who is this? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? My simple outline today, I'm an incredibly simple man with such an embarrassingly simple message, but my simple outline today gives a proposed answer that I'm pleased to say is once again in firm agreement with the philosopher Kanye West, and that is this, Jesus is King. Who is this Jesus? Well, He is King. And I hope that from the text, I can show you what kind of King He is today. He is the King who was promised He is the King like no other, and He is the King that we still long for as we wait. Firstly, Jesus is the King who was promised. Now there's a whole lot of debate around what's going on with these donkeys and it's fascinating. Literally whole chapters written by scholars. Did Jesus prearrange this meeting? How does Matthew's phrase work that Jesus sat on them? The truth is that we don't really know. Was this a a prearrangement or a divine compulsion? I think it's the latter and I don't think it matters. Here's what we do know. Matthew is explicit that Jesus was doing something really deliberate when he gave these orders. He was saying, I am the one you have been waiting for. There is no other. I am the king. Look at how Matthew describes it, verse four. It says, this took place so that, you see the deliberate nature of this? So that, right? What was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, which said, tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a direct quote. From Zechariah 9. I know you know that chapter so well, but this chapter is about how God will send the king of Zion to judge Israel's enemies. It goes on to say that this king will remove the war horse from Jerusalem and establish lasting peace on all sides for Israel, the like of which they hadn't known since King David and King Solomon. It was a precious text of hope to these people. It was something and someone that they would desperately looking for and longing for. It was something last done millennia before, and they knew that someone from the lineage of David would be the next to do it. They were longing, you see, friends, for a warrior king like David who would free them from their enemies. Jesus goes to great lengths to show them, it's me. Don't miss it. It's me, there is no other, and yet, Many of them miss this moment. Matthew tells us that their most authoritative answer to the question of who is this that they can come up with is that Jesus is a prophet from Nazareth. They miss that He is the Messiah, the King. And of course, a few days later, goes on to be put to death in this city with the title King of the Jews, inscribed over His head in three languages, a title that the people of Jerusalem take offense at because they reject that, even though he's standing right in front of them. Why? Well, we'll get into this more fully in the next point, but Jesus doesn't act like the king that they wanted. And so they missed the overwhelming evidence that he was in fact the king that they really and truly needed. In the midst of their pain, in the midst of the injustice of a Roman occupation in the chaos and anarchy of their political, societal and religious moments. They could not see the King of Kings standing right in front of them holding all of history together. Why? Because he didn't look like the sort of leader that they thought that they needed in order for them to feel free. Now friends, before we judge them, wait, we do the same thing. We fail to give Jesus his rightful place of kingship of our lives because we forget who he actually is. In those moments when we believe that he fails to operate in the ways that we would want him to operate as king. Haven't you felt this? How many of us would be able to say today that we are currently submitting our lives appropriately to the kingship? of Jesus. If He is who He says He is, is He getting from us what He deserves? Can I be honest here? Some days, some days, when I look at the world and all of its ills and all of the problems and all of the strife and all of the stress and all of the injustice and all of the pain, my faith and my subsequent submission to Jesus can take a bit of a pounding. I do really wish that God would exercise His authority and manifest His power in the world in a way that would make it more obvious that He was in control. I wish He would intervene actively and visibly to prevent violence and injustice and mass shootings and hatred and war and abuse. I wish He would. What helps me to remember that Jesus is who He says He is when that's taking place? Well, one of those things, it's not the only one, but one of those things that I just can't get away from, that that my mind actually and my heart just can't get away from is how Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament prophecy, which then declare that He is who He says He is, which draws me back to Him. More than 350 prophecies fulfilled in His birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection. It helps me to remember that He still holds it all together and that most importantly, He still is who He says He is, then I'm okay in spite of my questions. This helps me to understand the Scriptures and to return to them when I struggle, as Jesus reminds us in the greatest Bible study of all time, which is recorded in Luke 24, that He is the key to the law and the prophets. This helps me to understand the power And the character of God is, I remember that the scriptures tell me that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which means that God is kind and gentle and merciful and loving. And then when doubts abound, when frustration reigns, when my heart gets drawn to the promises of other ways of attaining joy, then I can remember Jesus is the promised King. There is no other. I can then, like Peter does in John six, say to my Lord in seasons of doubt and wrestle and struggle, to whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is our promised King. And we must remember that when we don't feel like He is behaving like the King we think that we want when we aren't getting our own way in the world and we wish He would intervene in some way. Psalm 2 tells us that while the nations of the world rage, God sets His King in Zion. Jesus is that long promised King and nothing can move Him. I hope that builds some faith in your heart today. Okay, but as we see so clearly in the text, Jesus is also a king like no other. Jesus wasn't just fulfilling prophecy as He rode in on that young donkey. He was also displaying His character. His arrival according to Matthew and Zechariah is one of gentleness and humility, not at all like any of the kings of that time or culture. The word used for Jesus' humility and gentleness here is the exact same word that's used in one of my favorite verses in all of scripture in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus says that He is gentle and lowly, that He is humble in heart, and therefore we can trust Him with the yoke that He gives us to carry. And friends, this display that Jesus has as He rides into Jerusalem is not at all like typical displays of strength of that day or this day for that matter. And this is where Christianity gets hard because our King is humble and our King is gentle and our King submits Himself to things that we don't wanna submit ourselves to and therefore to follow Him is gonna look like imitating Him. We don't wanna do that. You see parades like this one were commonplace in Roman culture. It was a big part of Roman festivity. And I do believe that Jesus is confronting that culture of power and dominance directly here. You see, kings and high-ranking military officials would march through the streets at the end of great battles with the king riding on a white stallion and with the spoils of war behind them, including the people they had taken captive. They were paraded around the streets so that people could taunt and torment them as they could praise their great liberators at the same time. This is why there is so much uproar and confusion and questioning amongst the people. They knew that it was prophesied that the king of Zion would come on a donkey to Jerusalem, but they then assumed in their worldly thinking that he would jump off that donkey and begin quite rapidly the whole slaying of the Romans part that they were so looking forward to, and Jesus didn't. This, friends, is why it's so mixed here. We think, oh, they're singing Hosanna, laying palm branches on the ground. What a wonderful worship service. And I'm sure some of them had great intentions, but some of them were thinking something else. Hosanna means God save us. But it become a regular part of the language of that day as they were thinking about God save us as a nation. God save Israel from the Romans. They lay palm branches on the road. These weren't symbols of religious fervor. They were icons of national liberation. They had been used just over 150 years before in the Maccabean Revolt, which had temporarily removed pagan dominance from the Holy City. And so as they're singing, God save us, and as they lay palm branches on the road, they're fully expecting a repeat of that revolt with the King of Zion to overthrow Rome. But our King Jesus, as always, is working on such a different agenda. The donkey isn't just a prop for him, it's a perfect symbol of his upside down kingdom. He was there to subvert and undermine the power of Rome to be sure, but not by crushing it, but by allowing himself to be crushed by it. Not through overtaking their highest halls of power, but through being dragged into them as a prisoner on trial and in chains. Not by executing their leadership so that he could rule, but by allowing their leadership to execute him so that he could actually save. This was him truly answering the crowds plea, Hosanna, God save us. This is what he was doing, but they didn't recognize it because it looked like weakness. This is the tremendous collision we have to come to terms with between the sovereign power of Jesus and the marvelously humble person of Jesus. He has absolute power, friends, and He wields it in a way that no one expects. He uses it to serve and to save and to love and to protect. He is our King, but He's a King who submitted Himself to the cradle as an infant, He is our King but He serves us for years in obscurity as a carpenter. He is our King, but He arrives in Jerusalem on a cult. He is our King, but He submits Himself to the brutality and shame of a cross. He is our King. He is a King like no other King. Our oh, friends, the tension. He is the Lion of Judah the King of Zion, but He is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has infinite majesty and yet He has total humility. He executes perfect justice and yet He offers boundless grace. He possesses absolute sovereignty and still displays utter submission. He is all sufficient and yet in His life shows what it is like to walk with full trust and dependence upon His Father in humility. Friends, here is the risk for us for us, we can be like these people. In our hopes for our own flourishing, we can miss him just like the people of Jerusalem did. We can insist on or we can purely justify the systems of power of the world to get what we think is our liberation done. We look to those on the white horses of our day and we miss the king on a cult. We can conflate our sense of aspirations for our community and our country with the purposes of the kingdom of God. And then we can subjugate the kingdom of humility for our own communities of power. And then we find ourselves crying out, Hosanna, but missing the king of our very salvation. What or who are you looking to to save you? Who are you crying? Hosanna out to. Friends, in this tumultuous season, (laughs) it has grieved my heart as a a pastor, as a shepherd, as someone who loves the flock, wants to walk long journeys with people as long as they'll walk with a simpleton like me. To see so many people who declare Jesus as King, but who are Desperately holding on to systems of power in this world for their salvation. You know how you can see it? What are they most passionate about? What are they most fearful of? My pastoral conversations at the moment are not about the glory of Christ, they're not about his grace, they're not about his mercy, they're not about his humility. They're about who gets the power. It leads to paranoia, fear, agitation anger, restlessness of spirit that shouldn't be signs of people of the kingdom. Why? We've cried out Hosanna to other things and to other people and not to our King. He won't lead like the systems of this world. He's better by far. He's better by far. Jesus is like no earthly king. And so we shouldn't ever make an earthly king into any sort of functional Jesus. It's a terrible trade. Okay, lastly, Jesus is the King that we still long for. And oh man, I long for His return. (laughs) I used to hear all the men speaking about, oh, it'll be great when Jesus comes back. And I was like, no, i got things to do, man. i got experiences. Now I'm just like, bring it. Bring it, oh Lord, don't tarry. Why the wait? Let's get the show on the road. I can't wait to see Him. Look at when the crowd sings, here's what they sing. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They are in part singing from Psalm 118. I would encourage you to read it later today. It is magnificent. It's the Psalm that speaks of a stone that the builders reject that becomes the cornerstone on which the true house of God is built. It's a messianic Psalm about our King Jesus. And it's also the Psalm that Jesus himself quotes later on in Matthew. In Matthew 23, 39, where he says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus shows us in Matthew 23 that he sees this messianic Messianic psalm having two enactments. It was fulfilled once in his arrival in Jerusalem, but it will ultimately be fulfilled in his return to Zion's holy hill when he appears again there in glory. And it is for that appearance that we wait and that we long for. And you know what? (laughs) That arrival will be very, very different. There will be no confusion about who He is. No one will be asking, who is this, who is He, who, no, no one. There will be no young cult. Jesus gets His warhorse, and our only response will be worship. Look at the vision that John has of this glorified King Jesus from Revelation 19. Let it bring an urgency and a fervor and a zeal back into your faith and your worship of Him. Uh, look! Look at our King, as he comes back, Revelation 19:11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. <laughs> See it? The donkey's gone. His rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod and it will be good. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, that is our King. And our friends, He will make it all right. He will make it all just. The blood of His robe is His own because that great King rode into Jerusalem and humbly submitted Himself to death for your salvation. So that when you cry out, Hosanna, God save us. He says, I got you. And so, friends, we ask ourselves today as they did in Jerusalem on that day, who is this? Well, if He is who He says He is in the Scriptures, then our only possible cry with urgency and with zeal and with fervor is, Hosanna, God save us and forgive us for the many ways we look to others for salvation. Jesus, dear friends, is king. And so we say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the reminder of Your goodness, of Your kindness, of Your mercy, and of Your power. Thank You for the humility of Your Son showed us in this beautiful tender moment, how He holds all of history together and yet submits Himself even to death, death on a cross, why? So that He can save us. And yet Father, so many of us miss it. I pray that we wouldn't today whether those who somehow are hearing this today who don't know your son Jesus, who have never cried out, Hosanna, maybe they'll do it today for the first time. Why don't you move their spirits now? Friends, if that's you, now in prayer, you can say that, Hosanna, it's a weird word, right? God save me, God save me. I can't save myself. The systems of this world cannot save me. The heroes of this world cannot save me. I need that humble King, Jesus. I need him to save me now before he comes back on that white horse, please save me. He'll meet you, friend. You can pray that. Friends, where you've given your hearts to idols, to the systems of this world, where you find yourself angry, agitated, fearful. Turn again, Hosanna. Hosanna, King Jesus, gentle, meek beautiful, wonderful, humble, immensely strong, King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus, save us. Keep us, (laughs) lead us, and then come get us. Please come get us soon. Until that day, we cry Hosanna in the highest. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.